Fresh from the courtroom, where the, the, just, the judges were so enthralled that they made us late for this forum. Uh, welcome to Cato uh, for this uh, forum on the latest challenge to yet another aspect of the Affordable Care Act. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here. Uh, and I'll be your moderator, or should I say your Virgil through this uh, latest ring of Obamacare hell. Now, all of you are watching, that, that are watching this know that nearly two years ago, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts changed the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate into a tax and thus rescued President Obama's signature legislation. What you may not know is that with this sleight of hand, or flick of the wrist, he actually sent Obamacare flying from the constitutional frying pan into the constitutional fire. That is, if you accept the great alchemist's transmogrification of a penalty-enforced regulation into a mere tax on the condition of not owning health insurance, in other words, a, a unicorn tax, a creature of no known constitutional providence that'll never be seen again, if you accept that, you torque up the ACA's tension, uh, constitutional tension vis-a-vis -vis the origination clause. Article 1, Section 7, Clause 1 says, quote, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. This clause was put in to ensure that the most awesome federal power was lodged in the political body most sensitive to the people. The power to tax is the power to destroy, John Marshall wrote in the foundational 1819 case of McCulloch versus Maryland. So the framers wanted to ensure that any such destruction came from the people themselves. Fast forward to December 2009, immediately before the Ur Tea Party state of Massachusetts expressed the nation's displeasure with Obamacare by electing a Republican to the Senate. That's when the Senate took a bill giving benefits to members of the military who were first-time homebuyers, and as George Will put it last week, uh, quote, amended this bill by obliterating it. Harry Reid renamed it and replaced its entire contents with the ACA. Now, Supreme Court precedent says that the Senate can indeed amend House-passed revenue bills, but only if the amendment is germane to that bill's subject matter. That loophole has turned out to be wide enough to run the Kentucky Derby through. But still, what was done with Obamacare was breathtakingly unprecedented. If a bill to fundamentally restructure the national health care system is a germane amendment to a bill regarding housing tax credits for servicemen, then the word germane has no meaning. Uh, I recall the Princess Bride. You keep using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Moreover, while the origination clause doesn't apply to taxes that are, quote, analogous to fines, in that they enforce compliance with a law passed under one of Congress's other enumerated powers, not the taxing power, uh, John Roberts foreclosed that interpretive option. Finally, Obamacare's defenders argue, and perhaps we'll hear this from Sai, uh, uh, that the Obamacare tax isn't a tax because its purpose isn't to raise revenue, but rather to encourage certain behavior. Uh, I guess that means it's no longer a Roberts unicorn tax, but instead a Schrodinger's cat tax. But if any tax with a behavior-changing purpose or effect, so all of them, uh, were exempt from the origination clause, then that's one more liberty-protecting clause that's read out of the Constitution, or at least the courts 
do not enforce. In any event, this morning, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, where we just came from, heard argument on all these issues in CISL versus Department of Health and Human Services, a case brought by an Iowa artist and a small business owner who neither has nor wants health insurance, preferring to invest his limited resources in his business. Here to discuss the argument and the broader issues I just described uh, is Cato adjunct scholar Timothy Sanderfer, who argued the case followed by commentary from Ilya Soman and Cy Lazarus. I'll introduce them all now. Tim Sandifer is a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and heads the foundation's Economic Liberty Project. He has won important legal victories uh, for economic freedom in California, Oregon, Missouri, Kentucky, and elsewhere. And in late 2011 was named Appellate Lawyer uh, of the Week for his work challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Tim is the author of three books, which I believe you can buy outside afterwards, Cornerstone of Liberty, uh, The Right to Earn a Living, and The Conscience of the Constitution, which George Will highly recommended two weeks ago. So clearly, Tim has something on, on Mr. Will. Uh, as well as more than 50 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from, uh, ranging from eminent domain to economic liberty to copyright creationism, the Civil War, uh, and legal issues in Shakespeare and ancient Greek uh, drama. Tim is a graduate of Chapman University School of Law and Hillsdale College. <clears throat> Ilya Soman, also a Cato adjunct scholar, is a law professor at George Mason University, and before that was a John M. Olin Fellow at Northwestern University and clerk for Judge Jerry Smith of the Fifth Circuit. He published two books just last year, Democracy and Political Ignorance and A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, uh, co-authored with uh, his fellow Volokh conspirators and edited by our own Trevor Burris and has another book on Kilo and property rights coming out this year, co-published by Cato. Next year. Sorry? Next year. Next year. Ah, it's been pushed. He wants to stagger his book tours and great media uh, appearances. Uh, Ilya is widely published in both the scholarly and popular press, including most notably the Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, and as a member of the Volokh Conspiracy, which is now part of the Washington Post, is a prominent blogger. Ilya's interests are also uh, very wide, including democracy and political knowledge, federalism, property rights, science fiction, and the Boston Red Sox. Most importantly, he's quite literally my nominal doppelganger. See the Ilya Confusion Watch feature on Josh Blackman's blog. But luckily, we agree on almost everything, including the Red Sox. So neither of us really minds being associated with the other's work. Uh, finally, Cy Lazarus uh, is not a Cato adjunct scholar, but Cy, if you want to talk to our development office, that might be a possibility. Uh, he's a senior counsel uh, at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Before joining the CAC, Cy was public policy counsel to the National Senior Citizen Law Center. He served as an associate director of President Carter's White House domestic policy staff, uh, as a partner at Powell Goldstein, a senior counsel to Sidley Austin. He's a trustee of the Center for Law and Social Policy and a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He's a prolific writer, as with the others, I won't list the various outlets, and has published several issue briefs for the American Constitution Society relating to the ACA, <coughs> including mandatory health insurance, is it constitutional, and the health reform lawsuits unraveling a century of constitutional law and the fabric of modern government. He graduated from Yale Law School, as did Ilya, I should add. So if you don't like either of our commentators, I suggest you send your complaints to New Haven. Uh, <laughs> finally, I'll note that Cy wrote uh, early in the individual mandate uh, litigation, uh, the case that ended up being NFIB versus Sebelius, 
that the lawsuits uh, that were uh, ended with that highly contentious uh, decision were frivolous and that the attorneys who brought them uh, ought to be sanctioned. Setting aside the wisdom of that analysis, I can only imagine what he thinks of our first speaker. Tim. Well, thank you very much uh, to all of you and to Cato for hosting this. And I also want to thank um, uh, the various organizations, Pacific Legal Foundation and its donors, and uh, the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence in Orange County and its supporters the um, American Association for Physicians and Surgeons, and the members, the more than 40 members of Congress who all appeared as amicus in support of our position in this case. Uh, we know this, this is a long shot. It's always a long shot when suing the government, particularly over the Affordable Care Act, I think. But, um, but we, we bring these cases because we believe they have constitutional merit and with the intent of reaching the <coughs> Supreme Court uh, if and when possible. Um, one thing that we know about the origination clause is it does not allow the Senate to originate revenue bills. That's pretty much the only thing that's absolutely crystal clear about that provision of the Constitution. It says the House can originate revenue bills, and the Senate can amend these bills. And it's not really clear exactly what the difference between originate and amend is, but the one thing we know for certain is the Senate cannot originate these bills. The question in this case is whether the Senate can get around that restriction by passing an amendment whereby it originates a revenue bill. James Madison, interestingly enough, opposed including the origination clause in the Constitution at the Philadelphia Convention. The reason he opposed it was because he said, well, you know, adding this clause is going to cause us to have these, these debates if the Senate tries to use its amendment power to, to completely replace a House bill to, and, and do so by creating a revenue measure, then it's going to lead to lawsuits. And, uh, and knowing that, the delegates at Philadelphia included it in the Constitution. At the ratification conventions, there was only one real exchange on this issue in the Virginia ratification convention when an anti-federalist said, the problem is this clause is meaningless. If you allow the Senate to amend, then they're just going to use it as a way of originating by striking out the entire contents of a bill and replacing it in entirety. And Madison said, no, that's the one thing that we know they cannot do. And with that assurance, the Constitution was ratified. So the, although there are few origin, origination clause cases on the books, I think our case falls squarely within the one thing that we know that that clause does not permit. Now, I said there's few origination clause cases. There are very few. The leading one is, a, there's really two leading cases. One's called Flint versus uh, uh, Stone Tracy Corporation. And in the Flint case, what the Supreme Court said was the Senate can amend a House revenue bill as long as the amendment is germane to the subject of the original bill. What does germaneness mean? Well, it seems like a pretty common sense concept. I would argue that germaneness is inherent to the meaning of amend, right? Without germaneness, it's not an amendment. Without germaneness, it's, it has, it, unless a, an amendment is germane to the original thing, it's not an amendment, right? No an ordinary speaker of English would use the word amend to mean completely gut and replace. <clears throat> and yet that's what was going on here. In 1990, I believe it was, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Munoz Flores. And in Munoz Flores, the court said, we are going to enforce the origination clause. The House alone has the power to originate bills for raising revenue. And although the, it's true that the Houses of Congress can enforce the, this clause themselves, for instance, the House can refuse to approve a Senate-originated revenue bill, for example, that's not good enough reason for courts refusing to step in. So we will enforce origination clause uh, challenges, or enforce that clause in such challenges. 
Now, in Munoz Flores, the court didn't actually enforce the clause because they said in that case, it was not a bill for raising revenue. And this is where we get into the thicket, because the question, the reason why the district court dismissed our lawsuit was because it said the Affordable Care Act is not a bill for raising revenue. Now, the difference between a tax and a bill for raising revenue is the kind of thing only a lawyer could really enjoy. <laughs> but there are cases that suggest a difference. And what those cases say is a fine is not a bill for raising revenue. A fine is a monetary adjunct to some command, right? A fine is where they, we say, you have to do this, and if you don't, we're going to fine you. That's not a bill for raising revenue. Now, what, one thing we know from NFIB versus Sebelius is Obamacare does not impose a fine. The Supreme Court explicitly said, this is not a fine. This is a tax and a tax only. It levies a tax on the condition of not purchasing health insurance. So the fine exception doesn't apply. Munoz Flores also said that there are some kinds of laws that create a segregated fund, right, a particular program, and raises revenue to support that particular earmarked program. An example that I would have given had I had the chance this morning was that the, the, the beef it's what's for dinner ad campaign, right? You have, if, you, if you raise beef, you are required to pay into a fund, and that fund is used to advertise generic beef. That's not a bill for raising revenue because the funds go into a segregated fund, and they're spent on identifiable beneficiaries or for particular purposes, and those are not bills for raising revenue. That doesn't apply here. Obamacare raises tons of money. I mean, it's not just the individual mandate. There's a bunch of different taxes in this that raise billions of dollars in general revenue that go into the general treasury to be spent at Congress's discretion on whatever it chooses. So the exceptions that the cases have imposed to the origination clause don't apply in our case. Nevertheless, the reason we were dismissed below is because the district court said, well, the primary purpose of this law was to get people to buy health insurance the primary purpose test. And I think if we lose on our appeal, it'll probably be on this issue. Is that the, the right approach to take? Should courts say, well, yeah, it imposes a tax, but the real purpose Congress had in mind was such and such, and therefore it's not a tax? At the very least, the problem with that is, what do you do about sin taxes, taxes on tobacco or taxes on alcohol, which are, have both a regulatory purpose and a fundraising purpose, right? The, uh, ideally, nobody would smoke, and you wouldn't raise any money through a tobacco tax. That doesn't mean it's less of a bill for raising revenue. It's that money still goes into the treasury to be spent as the legislature chooses, so it's still a tax. If you use this vague inquiry into legislative purposes or motives, then it's all too easy for the Senate to rig that system by saying, oh, yes, we're passing this bill, and uh, it's not for raising revenue. It's got some other purpose in mind, and, and to get away with it that way. And what do you do about these omnibus bills that Congress passes that have a variety of different purposes in mind? Or Obamacare itself, which has, uh, we remember from the severability argument two years ago, is a huge bill with all sorts of different provisions that do a wide variety of different things. Now, let's take a step back and think about why this is important. Aren't we just doing this as a procedural trick? Isn't this just a technicality and, and those sorts of arguments? Lawyers know well enough that the reason the Constitution creates procedures for passing or, or limiting the legislative power is to protect individual liberty. This is a point that the Supreme Court has emphasized a lot lately in Bond versus United States and in other recent cases. The court has been really emphatic that the lawmaking procedures are the way they are in order to protect freedom. And I think that's especially important in the, when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. Right? If Congress can use its taxing power, its unicorn tax, as, as Ilya puts it, to 
to accomplish these goals, like forcing people to buy insurance. You know, the, what kind of tax is the individual mandate tax? It's not a direct tax, the court says. It's not an indirect tax, the court says. It's not an income tax. The Constitution does not allow for any other kinds of taxes. And yet here we have a tax on the status of not purchasing health insurance. If Congress can do that, that's all the more reason why we need more democratic control over the taxing power, which of course was the reason why Congress, the House of Representatives, has that power in the first place. The Founding Fathers were worried about the danger of the Senate, the least democratic branch of the federal government. It's not entirely elected in a single election. They serve the longest terms of any elected federal official. The Founding Fathers were worried that the least democratic branch of the federal government might exploit the taxing power to ram things down the public's throat, like the Affordable Care Act, which the majority of Americans have never supported from day one and today do not support. And that's why if the Congress is going to have the authority to impose taxes of the sort like the ACA, it's all the more important for that power to be kept in the hands of the most democratic branch as the Constitution requires. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, is this on? Yeah. It's on. Good. Um, thanks uh, to Cato for hosting still another excellent uh, discussion and uh, inviting me to participate in it. Um, congratulations to Tim on a genuinely uh, excellent argument under difficult circumstances. Um, I think you gave a very spirited but respectful uh, and articulate defense uh, against a panel that was not enormously uh, friendly to, uh, to your cause, I think, and that's always a very uh, difficult challenge for an advocate. Um, I just wanted to say that one of the uh, genuinely good things that has come to me as a result of embarking on my late-in-life career as a uh, progressive uh, public interest legal advocate has been uh, the extensive amount of association I have done, I've had with Cato, um, usually on different sides, not always on different sides, but uh, uh, the uh, intellectual quality of the exchanges uh, and the integrity of the uh, people involved has always been superb, and I have learned a lot from it, and I appreciate a great deal uh, my association. Um, I would have to say that, uh, to me, this cause uh, that you all, that you and Tim, and I presume Ilya on the left, not, pardon me, <laughs> are supporting, I find it a little bit puzzling uh, because it really does seem to be a, a rather hard sell. Um, you really are in the position of asking of hoping to be able to ask the, uh, the five conservative justices on the Supreme Court to overturn a law that's already been upheld, that is already providing access to health care for millions, pro probably already well over 10 million Americans who didn't have access to uh, health insurance before. Uh, and by the time this would reach the Supreme Court, it will be uh, a, a significantly larger number than that. And you're asking uh, the justices to make this what would be 
will be, would be a genuinely incendiary uh, intervention on the basis of arguments that are at odds with a century of Supreme Court precedent, uh, at odds with even more decades of congressional practice and precedent, um, with, I, I have to say, uh, scant basis in the constitutional text viewed by itself, uh, and ultimately what I would view as highly debatable claims about the Constitution's legislative history and historical antecedents uh, going back to England uh, uh, many hundreds of years. And I mean debatable, not in the sense that, that um, uh, the characterizations in uh, the briefs of uh, Tim and his amici uh, are inaccurate. Um, it's just that their pertinence to the issue here um, uh, about the applicability of the Constitution's origination clause uh, to the Affordable Care Act is that that, that is extremely unclear. Um, uh, as uh, Ilya noted and uh, Tim noted also, uh, the district court rather curtly dismissed um, uh, this case. Uh, so why did they do that? Really, for two major main reasons, I think. Uh, first, uh, they uh, emphasized the actual language of the text of the origination clause which reads, all bills for raising revenue, the word for becomes important, shall originate in the House of Representatives, semicolon, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. So uh, <clears throat> the interpretation that uh, uh, the, courts, the Supreme Court has relied, up, relied upon uh, the, and Judge Howell in the district court uh, uh, adhered to uh, which was originally stated, uh, I think, or articulately stated in any event, uh, iconically stated, we might say, by Justice Story in the 1830s, is that the clause applies to bills to levy taxes in the strict sense of the word and not to, not to bills for other purposes, which may incidentally create revenue. So Judge Howell ruled uh, that the individual mandate uh, section uh, 5000A of the ACA um, is, uh, uh, is, is a bill for another purpose uh, and, and, and it only incidentally creates revenue and therefore it's not uh, a revenue bill within the meaning of the origination clause. And uh, I just have to point out a couple things. I don't want to belabor this, but um, this is not some airy-fairy inquiry into what uh, Congress, Congress's subjective intentions may have been. Um, the, the purpose of the mandate as a guarantee that uh, um, uh, people will have a strong incentive to uh, sign up for health insurance uh, is in the text of the bill. It's, it's, it's right in the findings. Um, so there's every textual basis for it, as well as the fact that everyone knows that that's the case. And I should also say uh, that Chief Justice Roberts' opinion uh, in NFIB v. Sibelius uh, provides uh, really decisive support because what he says uh, about uh, uh, about uh, the individual mandate, he emphasized very strongly that this is a tax incentive to induce people uh, to pur to purchase health insurance, um, and he placed great emphasis uh, on the fact that. Um, if one doesn't buy insurance but does pay the tax, they haven't violated the law. That is, that exhausts their legal, satisfies their legal obligations. 
That is not true of normal taxes. If one of us doesn't want to pay our taxes, we have to pay our taxes. We, we have to pay a penalty, but then we have to pay our taxes too. Um, so uh, he uh, honed in on that as a very significant reason why this is a, this is a particular type of tax, a tax incentive, uh, uh, supportable as an exercise of the tax power, but clearly demonstrating that its purpose within the meaning of the, rel of the relevant Supreme Court cases on the origination clause, which were not at issue there, I, I know, uh, that its purpose uh, was not to raise revenue. Uh, and as I think uh, Judge Pillard said uh, during the argument, indeed, uh, the uh, architects of the ACA would have been happiest, or would be happiest, if it raised zero revenue. So I think that that's a, uh, a killer argument. Um, I, I know that others may not agree with that, but um, uh, that is the argument, uh, an argument that the district court emphasized. Um, secondly, um, the... Uh, I'm sorry. Secondly, the district court emphasized that um, the, the individual mandate did originate, the bill that the individual mandate is in originated uh, in the House, in, in a... Uh, uh, in a, um, it originated in the House within the meaning of the origination clause. It was made part of an amendment that the Senate made to a House bill uh, that was a revenue bill. Um, and the House bill uh, that it amended gave certain tax benefits to military personnel, imposed a small increase in corporate taxes, um, and uh, clearly was a revenue bill um, within the meaning of uh, precedence in, in construing the origination clause. Um, how, how much have I run over by now? No, you have uh, like seven minutes. Seven minutes, my goodness. Okay, well. You can yield it back to the floor if you want. Oh, I might. I, I Reserve think it for one. When <laughs> you think you're ahead, you should sit down. But in any event, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll, I'll finish a little bit more. So those are the two ba uh, main points of a relatively concise opinion by the district court. And um, to me, at least, they, they seem to be uh, pretty hard to quarrel with. However... Um, at the very beginning of, of uh, Tim's uh, presentation to the court this morning, he did something which I'm sure he'll explain that it was a little confusing to me um, because he said that he wanted to clarify uh, that, in fact, that the, that the plaintiffs, that the appellants, uh, did not contend or did not want to be understood to contend that the House bill that was amended uh, to uh, put the uh, ACA into it, um, that, that that bill was, in fact, a revenue bill. So there's a, this is another argument, and it wasn't, uh, I, I guess it was in your briefs, and it was in um, uh, briefs of some of the amici. <clears throat> so, so the argument is forget about whether uh, the um, uh, ACA individual mandate is, has the purpose of raising revenue or not, forget all of that, um, because the fact is that the bill it amended was, in, was actually not uh, a bill for raising revenue, and therefore, um, and therefore uh, um, uh, the Senate did adopt a bill, did adopt an amendment uh, for raising revenue and thereby violated the, the origination clause. Uh, that so sounds to me, right, five minutes. Less than that. That, that sounds to me, I, I guess that's a, a belt and suspenders kind of argument, which is a perfectly appropriate thing for lawyers to do. In other words, if you don't believe 
my primary arguments, then I should still uh, prevail because uh, here's another argument that, that would uh, mean that, that I should win even if the first uh, or second arguments aren't, uh, aren't persuasive. Um, but it seems to me that if this is in fact the belt and suspenders argument, it's a kind of uh, a set of suspenders that actually pulls your pants down. Uh, and the, the reason I say that is um, if the bill that the Senate amendment, which raised, uh, provided certain tax benefits and, and, and uh, uh, increased uh, corporate taxes, if that is not a bill for raising revenue, and, and by the way, all of, this, all of the money that's affected by that is going into the general, um, general treasury, and, and, and therefore I think even by the standards I, I, I think that my friend over here has been emphasizing should be considered a, a bill for raising revenue. Um, if that is not a bill for raising revenue, then how is it possible to say that the individual mandate, which as a, in, in point of fact, putting aside what the legal characterization should be, in point of fact is not designed to raise revenue, but is designed to be an incentive to purchase health insurance. How could that possibly be uh, a bill for raising revenue? So I think that uh, you can't, uh, this is really sort of having your cake and eat, eating it too, uh, several times over. Um, I don't think that uh, both positions can be correct, but perhaps Tim will explain uh, why that is, isn't true. Finally, just one thing. Uh, it is certainly true, as uh, uh, Tim said, I think quite articulately, that, that, they, that um, the supporters of this case are not contending that they should win simply as a matter of um, uh, impenetrable fine print in the Constitution or a technicality. They contend that very significant social uh, interests that are uh, sanctioned by the Constitution are, are at stake, and, and that interest is making sure that, that revenue-raising decisions are made by or heavily influenced by the body closest to uh, the people, um, and that is, in fact, the purpose of the Origination Clause. But I would only say one thing, and maybe we'll discuss this more uh, uh, later on. Um, the result of their winning would be to place a huge amount of power to micromanage uh, uh, procedures over dealing with revenue legislation in the courts, the branch of government least responsive uh, to the public. Uh, and I, I, I don't really think that that is a result that the framers uh, could possibly have had in mind. That's all. Thanks. Thank you. I should add that I prevented Cy from getting a hot dog on, on our way in, but hopefully we provided, we got a Snickers bar, so hopefully still Cy is himself uh, as the commercial goes. Anyhow, uh, Ilya. So I'd like to start by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this forum, uh, the other Ilya for moderating, and also Tim and Cy for their insightful presentations. Uh, unlike Cy and perhaps uh, Ilya, uh, before speaking about the individual mandate, I try to limit my food consumption to broccoli. Uh, I haven't yet had my portion of broccoli today, so I may not make as much sense as I would like to, uh, but I'm going to press on anyway, and perhaps there will be uh, some broccoli, hopefully voluntary broccoli uh, available afterwards. Uh, so I'm going to start off by briefly talking about the 
text of the origination clause and why I think it ultimately supports the plaintiffs in this case, despite some of the creative arguments that the government has come up with. Then I'll talk a little bit about the function of the origination clause and what it actually does and doesn't do. And here I, to some extent, actually agree with the government and also with James Madison. I think actually the origination clause probably does very little real good in the real world, given how Congress actually works. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the courts can simply ignore it. It just means that the framers probably made a mistake in putting this in the Constitution, just as James Madison argued way back at the time. Uh, finally, I'll discuss some interesting parallels between this litigation and the original individual mandate litigation that ended two years ago. Uh, and I think uh, there are some important similarities between these two cases, and those similarities suggest that this case may have more traction than a lot of people currently believe. Uh, so first, the text of the origination clause, it says, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. Uh, so uh, the key question arises, well, what is a bill for raising revenue? And as Sai pointed out, the government is trying to make a distinction in this case between a bill for raising revenue and a tax. They're saying, well, if the goal isn't really revenue is to do something else, then uh, maybe it's not really a bill for raising revenue, even though it is a tax. Uh, I think this sort of distinction is not supportable because virtually every tax has purposes other than raising revenue in addition to that objective. Uh, even something like the income tax, it's also for instance, trying to affect economic behavior, trying to affect the distribution of income, uh, and so forth. Moreover, even the goal of raising revenue is usually not pursued for its own sake. It's usually pursued for the purposes of having money to spend on various programs and the like. So uh, virtually every tax uh, or virtually every bill that raises some revenue also has other purposes, usually, as I suggested, purposes that are written into the tax or the preamble of the act. And therefore, I don't think that this distinction uh, is actually going to work. Uh, on the other hand, there is an important distinction between a bill for raising revenue or a tax on the one hand and a penalty on the other. Generally speaking, in the past, the Supreme Court has said that if what you have is a structure in the law which says you must do X uh, and you fail to do it, then you pay a monetary fine. That's considered as a penalty and not really a tax. I think, frankly, this is exactly what Obamacare's individual mandate actually is. It's a penalty and not a tax. And this is what 15 out of 16 lower court judges who considered this issue in the previous round of litigation, that's how they ruled. But Chief Justice Roberts and uh, majority of Supreme Court ruled otherwise. They said this is a tax, not a penalty. I think this is incorrect, but that's the precedent that we're stuck with. Had they gotten this issue right, we wouldn't need to be debating the origination clause because the origination clause would not apply to the individual mandate. But of course, uh, the individual mandate would already have been completely invalidated as unconstitutional because the majority of justices had ruled that uh, other powers of Congress, the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause, don't authorize this thing. They said it could only be authorized if it were reinterpreted as a tax. Uh, now, there is an additional wrinkle here that I think Sai mentioned in his presentation, uh, and this is the claim, well, if it really works the way that it's intended to, then there would be no revenue because everybody uh, would have purchased the health insurance that the government says that you're supposed to have, uh, and then there would not be any 
fines paid into the treasury. However, this sort of argument actually is precluded by the logic of Chief Justice Roberts' decision. He specifically said one of the things that in his view makes this a tax is that it's voluntary, that you have a genuine choice uh, whether you're going to actually purchase the health insurance or not, and that lots of people can reasonably be expected to choose the other way. So you know what, I'd rather pay this fine or this tax, whatever you want to call it, uh, and not buy the health insurance that is required of me. <clears throat> uh, and if that is the case, then uh, that there would be an expectation that there is going to be revenue. And in fact, that was expected beforehand that some people, millions of them actually would uh, pay the fine rather than uh, actually uh, choose to obey the mandate. Uh, so I think if this is a tax because it's genuinely voluntary, then you can't argue uh, that uh, this is something where revenue is not expected or is not part of the purpose, at least with respect to the millions of people who are expected not to purchase the health insurance and to pay the fine. Revenue is, in fact, the purpose in the case of all of those people. Uh, so I think that sort of argument doesn't work. It doesn't work only because Chief Justice Roberts got the tax issue wrong. I think this distinction between supposedly voluntary and not voluntary taxes doesn't really make a lot of sense. But it's in the precedent, and it's the only reason why, uh, according to Chief Justice Roberts, that this thing was upheld as a uh, tax in the first place. Uh, so uh, another uh, set of exceptions to uh, the idea that ta all taxes are bills for raising revenue that's in the precedent is that uh, things may be different if this money is specially segregated into a fund that just pays for the specific expense of the program that it's a part of. Whatever you think of this exception, it does not apply to this case because the money goes to the Treasury and to be spent however Congress wants. So uh, that doesn't apply here. Uh, finally, there is the question, well, there actually was a bill that came from the House of Representatives uh, that was a revenue bill and uh, then it was supposedly amended here. I think you can have a difficult and complex debate about at what point uh, does something stop being an amendment and becomes a completely new bill? This is one of those sorts of questions that lawyers are famous or notorious uh, for debating. Uh, and I think there may not be any good answer to this as to exactly where the line is. Uh, however, uh, I think it should be obvious that completely gutting and eliminating the original bill and replacing it with a totally different bill on a totally different subject is pretty obviously not amendment. Uh, this is a, reminds me of a hypothetical that I sometimes use to my law students to illustrate this sort of point. Uh, if, for instance, a law says that it applies to tall people, uh, it may be very difficult to determine at what point somebody stops being medium height uh, or stops being short and becomes tall. Is it 5 foot 10, 5 foot 11, 6 feet? Nonetheless, uh, it's not difficult to figure out that a person my height is short. On the other hand, a person Shaquille O'Neal's height is tall. Uh, and this case is in the Shaquille O'Neal range of that uh, issue that, uh, if anything, is uh, not an amendment, but actually a completely new bill. Than but Ilya, I'm confident you're a better free thrower. Uh, than Shaquille? <laughs> I used to be when I was young, but uh, sadly, oh. age and infirmity have uh, gotten me to the point where my free throw percentage is probably roughly the same as Shaq's is. Uh, sadly, however, I am before you today because my other basketball skills are not as good as his. We're not quite as good at any rate. So I will therefore press on with the uh, less interesting issues that I do have some competence on. Uh, so I think that's the 
you know, the issue of the tax and structure of the origination clause. What about sort of the real world impact of this? Uh, and here I, to some extent, sympathize with the government, and I don't think the origination clause actually serves the purpose for which it was intended. The logic is, well, we want the House that's closest to the people, the House of Representatives, to have responsibility for tax bills. They may be more anti-tax, or at least more suspicious of taxation, and that will help protect the people. I don't think this actually works, because whether the bill started in the Senate or in the House, it still has to get the approval of the House of Representatives. So whatever leverage the House of Representatives has can be exercised just as effectively whether the bill originates there or not as a practical matter. Nothing which lacks the support of a majority of both houses is going to pass. Uh, and uh, if, if they have the votes to pass in the first place, senators can simply get their allies in the House to originate the bill. Uh, I don't think this will be an obstacle in most cases, except perhaps under the kind of highly unusual circumstances uh, that occurred here. But that, I think, was clearly uh, an unusual situation rather than something we could expect to recur uh, with any kind of regularity. Uh, moreover, under modern conditions, the difference between the Senate and the House in this respect is diminished. Today, unlike in the 1780s and 90s, the Senate is popularly elected. Uh, it has very constrained by public opinion in many ways. There are still some differences, obviously, between the Senate and the House. Uh, they have six-year terms versus two years. Moreover, the Senate, in a sense, is malapportioned because there's two senators per state, regardless of the size of the state's population. But I'm not convinced that uh, these differences point to the Senate being systematically more or less anti-tax uh, than the House is. It probably really depends on who happens to control the Senate or the House uh, at any particular time. So at bottom, I'm with James Madison. He probably was right that there was no need to put this in the Constitution. He probably was right that it generates unnecessary litigation. But my opinion and Madison's opinion don't mean that the courts can simply ignore this thing, uh, because the job of the courts is to enforce the Constitution as a whole. It's not to uh, engage in analysis and theorizing as to whether a particular provision of the Constitution should have been put there in the first place. So it's true today, if you have like sort of the Ilya Soman, or I should say the Ilya Soman slash James Madison rewrite of the Constitution, this clause wouldn't be in there. Uh, but that's not really relevant to interpreting the Constitution that we currently actually have. Uh, finally, in the last few minutes that I have, I'd like to talk about some interesting and, to my mind, at least significant parallels between this case and the individual mandate case that the Supreme Court decided two years ago. Uh, one parallel that's very striking is initially the defenders of the individual mandate met both cases with disdain and incredulity. They said, well, of course, these are obviously stupid arguments. You can only believe these arguments if either you're just basically ignorant about constitutional law or you're some sort of political partisan uh, who's biased by their partisan loyalties of some, of some kind. But it became clear over time, both in the reactions in the courts uh, and expert commentators elsewhere, that the arguments did have at least some serious merit. Didn't necessarily mean that they definitively deserved to win, but uh, the arguments were serious. You saw what happened in the Supreme Court, where actually, uh, in the case of the original individual mandate case, most of the arguments made by the plaintiffs actually were accepted. They wanted a commerce clause. They wanted an necessary and proper clause. 
on the tax clause. The chief justice ruled against him only because he ended up reinterpreting the law against what he himself called its natural reading. So this was a very close case that clearly uh, did end up having some uh, genuine merit, regardless of whether you think that it ultimately deserved to prevail or not. Uh, and one of the things also that became clear in the course of the litigation over the previous individual mandate cases that in fact it was a case that was not clearly covered by existing precedent. While at first the defenders of mandate said, what well, is the clearly within one precedent or another? And I admit, I myself thought that it was probably within one of the existing precedents. As you actually looked at the precedents with this particular case in mind, it became clear that those precedents uh, didn't really cover it. Uh, and I think the same thing applies here. Indeed, it applies even more strongly because there's a lot less precedent out there on the origination clause than there was on the commerce clause uh, or the necessary and proper clause or even other aspects of the tax clause, the question of what counts as a tax. Uh, so uh, I think this is a case of, to a large extent at least, first impression, and therefore the courts have a lot of uh, legroom to decide what they want to do here. A third uh, important parallel between these cases is that in both instances, if the government were to prevail, uh, essentially a significant constraint or on federal power would be largely gutted. If the government had prevailed on its main arguments in the original individual mandate case, Congress would have had the power to mandate pretty much anything. If they prevail here, I think the origination clause would ultimately be gutted because you could use this shell bill strategy, this strategy of uh, completely gutting and replacing to uh, get around the origination clause pretty much every time. Uh, all, all the time, there are all kinds of minor bills passed through the House of Representatives, which the Senate, if it wanted to, could then gut uh, and replace with something else. Uh, so I personally think it would not be a great loss in the real world if the origination clause were gutted. That influences my attitude towards this case as opposed to the original individual mandate case where I think a generalized power to impose mandates really does pose serious dangers. But the origination clause is part of the Constitution, and the government's position in this case would end up gutting it. Uh, and that, I think, is at the very least a minus uh, for their argument. Finally, in both cases, the unpopularity of Obamacare and the way it's incredibly in flux should play a role. Usually the court would hesitate to strike down a law that has the strong support of the president and his party and is a major part of their agenda. In this case, however, uh, the law from right from the beginning was opposed by the majority of the public, which means the court would not suffer anywhere near the usual political backlash if it struck it down. Moreover, one difference uh, that between now and the original case is that this factor has actually been accentuated. Uh, what has happened is that uh, the president has uh, delayed implementing large parts of the law, including actually the individual mandate, and that may make it easier politically for the courts to strike it down. So ultimately, I'm not predicting that the Supreme Court will strike down the case necessarily, or even that the case will get to the Supreme Court. I think that's still the less likely possibility, uh, but it is has a greater chance than uh, many observers think it, that it does. And uh, I think the parallels between this case and the last decision do point in that direction. Most likely, the court still, I think, will not strike this down. But it does have a real chance, and people uh, who are just dismissive about it or may well be repeating the same mistakes that were made two years ago. Thank you very much, and I very much look forward to the discussion.
Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, before we start questions, I, I thought uh, I would uh, ask Tim just to recap uh, how argument went. Uh, I take my hat off to you. I've never done uh, one of these things myself. And I must say, this particular uh, uh, judicial panel of the D.C. Circuit was going in. Uh, Tim knew, I think we all knew, that it was going to be an uphill climb. Uh, the, the members of the panel were Judges uh, Rogers, who's a fairly uh, a liberal Clinton appointee, and Judges Pillard and Wilkins, who were two of Obama's last uh, appointees that were uh, put on the court after the Senate exercised the so-called nuclear option and, and eliminated the filibuster for uh, judicial and executive nominees. So uh, clearly not a, a favorable uh, uh, audience, I think. But nevertheless, Tim, uh, tell us uh, how things went. Uh, they loved me. It was all softball questions, and I predict a three to zero win uh, I, I predict one as well, but not. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're right that that it was uh, it's an uphill climb. Although I I thought that they asked some very rigorous questions of the other side. Also, um, the the government's put all of its eggs in the basket of a case called Rainey, in which uh, which predates the 1990 case that I talked about, Munoz Flores, and says that uh, if the House is okay with it, we're okay with it, and the Senate can do whatever it wants. And Munoz Flores explicitly rejects that position. So. Um, they got some harsh questioning on that on that issue. Um, yeah, they were skeptical, but as uh, Daniel had only his faith, so I have only my constitution, and uh, I <laughs> I volunteered for this assignment because I knew it'd be so easy. Um, no, I thought uh, um, the I was surprised by the number of questions about what the founders thought. That issue is very fully briefed, but I was uh, I did not expect it to come up in oral argument. And there was discussion about what did what was thought at Philadelphia. What about the ratification debates? And um, and that that surprised me. There was also um, kind of you know there was sort of the well no you know the court has never struck down a law for violating the origination clause uh, to begin with. Well, okay, but uh, you know we know that in NFIB the court was confronted with questions that had not been raised uh, and had not been addressed by the Supreme Court before. So. Um, you know, I, I think it was clearly clear that the judges are skeptical. It is uh, it is something on which there is not even not. A, it's not a thing where it's we're going in the face of strong precedent to the contrary. It's the it's mostly that there really isn't much precedent at all. So it's it's even more difficult, I think, in that respect than than NFIB, in which the, the plaintiffs were scaling a mountain that was clearly opposed to them and prevailed. And in this case, there's there's very there's scanty precedent. And that precedent, which does exist, doesn't really address the question that's that's quite at issue in this case with this gut and replace bill. So I think the just the judges are are left with, you know, having to go back to the to the founders for what what they thought. Sai, are there any uh, argument highlights that that you want to mention that haven't been discussed? No, I, I think uh, I think all, all of Tim's observations were um, were were sound. I, I would just say I think it, it, you're right, Tim. I hadn't really picked up on this. It is interesting that uh, the judges uh, did um, ask both both sides, I think, but they particularly were fairly aggressive with the government uh, about uh, evidence uh, of uh, what Judge Wilkins called uh, the original intent on this. And I, I would only suggest, I don't really don't know why, but um, I, I think that uh, really... The, the, case, the, the, the reason, I think, that Ilya's uh, suggestion that this case may have more legs than people might think is true, if it is true, uh, 
is precisely because uh, of the possibility that uh, some of the justices will uh, find resonance in the claim that um, the original intention uh, of the origination clause uh, has basically not been uh, followed uh, by either the Supreme Court or um, uh, or, or congressional practice uh, over these years, um, and uh, and the Supreme Court needs therefore to rectify that. And there, and I, I think that that the, the uh, judges may have been thinking about writing an opinion that pre- uh, preemptively addresses that issue. But of course, I don't really know. All right, let's open this up for questions. Please uh, wait for the microphone and then identify yourself and actually ask a question. Let's start right here. My name is Dominic Cardella. I'm uh, retired. And I will say that one of the nice things about being retired is is that I get to uh, attend these wonderful Cato events. Um, In my personal experience, the Affordable Care Act is very definitely a tax-raising act. I'm retired, as I mentioned, pay into Medicare and secondary insurance. My individual income tax obligations were considerably higher this year, and I was told that the extra taxes were due to the Affordable Care Act. If the Affordable Care Act is determined to be unconstitutional by the relevant courts, would the additional taxes collected be retroactively refunded to the taxpayers? Tim? I have no idea, but I'd be very surprised if you ever got any money back from the government for anything at any time for any reason. Here. Hi, my name is Ben Wilterdink. I'm with the American Legislative Exchange Council. And a question for anybody on the panel really is about severability. If this case were to prevail, uh, would it have any possibility of severing out the individual mandate but keeping the rest of it intact? I mean, as far as practical reasons, you know, we can debate whether that would work or not. But as far as a legal reason, do any of you see that as a possibility? And I'll add to that. Are there other points of division, other, you know, cutting out all of the taxes or, you know, some of them, some other way to draw that line? Yeah. um, So this issue was extensively briefed and debated in the original individual mandate case. uh, And we know that the four justices who dissented on the tax issue also would would have concluded that the original individual mandate is not severable. Uh, And to make a long story short, uh, the case against severability is actually stronger here than it would have been in the original individual mandate case. In the original case, all that was at stake was the specific mandate, which says you pay this money if you don't buy health insurance. But as I think a couple of my co-panelists pointed out, there actually are other taxes uh, in the uh, Obamacare uh, bill. And so more of it would immediately be unconstitutional under this origination clause argument if it prevails. Uh, and the more aspects of the original bill are unconstitutional, the harder it is to argue that the rest should stay in place uh, because the rest uh, makes some sort of logical sense without the part that's been struck down. That said, severability doctrine is generally murky. Uh, and 
you know, there's not, you know, th there is a lot of precedent there, but the problem is that that precedent is sort of a muddle and has various contradictory strands. So I think both sides could make arguments here. Uh, but I think there is a decent chance that uh, at the very least that if this were struck down at all, it would mean the whole act would have to go because we already know that four justices think the whole act would have to go if even just the insurance mandate is struck down. And if various other taxes that are included in the law uh, are also struck down, then that just strengthens that case. Uh, so uh, it, you know, so I, I think you know, there is a real chance that it would be declared not severable, but this area of law is somewhat murky. On, on, on that point, I'll just add that, that of course, the court could – what it ought to do is just say, you know, it, 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 it fails the origination clause. It's unconstitutional. Congress can turn around and repass it the right way, right? Of course, we all know that's a joke, that they would not actually repass it the right way because the votes aren't there, because the American people don't support the Affordable Care Act and don't believe in it and, uh, and oppose it. And that's why my progressive Democratic friends are opposed to keeping the power to tax in the hands of the Democratic branch of the federal government because they know that had the Congress passed the, or followed the constitutional rules, this bill would not have passed in the first place. Well, actually, this is a logical place to insert my question that arose from Sai's presentation uh, you know, because he uh, alleged that it was you, Tim, that want to take uh, revenue legislation, not just the Affordable Care Act, but all revenue legislation out of the hands of the Democratic branches and, and put it under the micromanagement uh, of the judicial branch. So, uh, Cy, uh, is there a formulation of, uh, of the origination clause or, or um, you know, its uh, restrictions, uh, if there are any uh, uh, in your view, that are judicially enforceable? What would that look like, that kind of standard? Well, I, I think that the current law and practice is really uh, that the Senate cannot literally originate a bill, and that is about as far as the courts have gone so far. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think that that is as far as they ought to go. I think for reasons that have been stated, especially by Elia. Uh, Which one? I, that's a bad, you know, that, that's a good point. <laughs> this Elia. Um, uh, this, this is a clause which uh, probably was a mistake in, 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 in a number of senses, but the most important one is that it, it just doesn't really work. And uh, by the way, um, if, um, uh, if Tim's side were to prevail here and they were to get a ruling, say that you, you can't strike the entire bill, you can't have a bill in the nature of a substitute, an amendment in the nature of a substitute, which is what these kinds of amendments are, are routinely called and are routinely used, um, the response to that would be that, that uh, they would preserve some part of the original bill and then they would, then they would uh, add uh, the real bill that they really wanted to add as an amendment. And it, really, and, and it, 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 it just wouldn't really change the fact that uh, the uh, effective way to enforce the constitutional uh, requirement that the House originate uh, revenue legislation is for the House to enforce it. And in fact, the House does enforce it. Uh, I mean, the House routinely blue slips uh, bills coming over from the Senate uh, that it considers 
unconstitutional uh, uh, Senate-originated revenue measures. So uh, I think that's a, a, a Just to be clear, blue sliving means just that, lodging an objection saying we can't take up this bill because it's, it's a revenue-raising one that was yes. raised in the Senate. So, so I, I think that that, that, that really, that this is a, there, there are time, there, uh, this is um, uh, a, a good area for uh, the court to uh, exercise considerable restraint and leave it up to the political branches to deal with. I'll come back to Roger next, but... Oh, okay, okay. A necessary follow-up in that case. Uh, Roger Pilan, Cato. Um, with respect to this uh, difficulty of the courts having to decide on this, why couldn't the court, picking up on uh, Ilya's opening comment uh, about the the difficulty of drawing this kind of line between a revenue bill and a regulatory bill that raises uh, uh, just simply fines. Is why your mic just on, issue, Roger? Just, is your mic on? Yeah. Why couldn't, the why couldn't this be treated as a per se rule, that if it's raising revenue per se, uh, then it has to originate in the House, and therefore you don't get into the problem of the judiciary uh, having some discretion as to whether— Probably cover almost every bill at the that's time right. it passes. So. And, and maybe that's the way it should be. One point, uh, kind of uh, an adjunct to that point is, that was made by some of the amici in the case is they say, well, the only part of this bill that remained after the Senate amended it was the bill number. And bill numbers, and bill numbers didn't exist at the time of the framing. And, the, and I think the broader point is that uh, omnibus bills are really a large part of what throws off rational application of the origination clause is, is Congress knows that it's more effective to get things past the eyes of the voters without any serious de democratic deliberation by stuffing everything together into an omnibus bill and passing it that way, which wasn't really the practice back then. There was log rolling, but it was, it was two bills would be passed at the same time, which allowed at least a fair look at the merits. And, and that's a, a point that I made in the argument about the, this whole gen, general purpose approach. Well, the, it's a tax, but it wasn't really a, a bill for raising revenue because the purpose of this was to you know, subsidize puppy dogs or something. And the problem with that approach is, is just that, is that there, uh, an omnibus bill has thousands of purposes. Obamacare itself has, has all sorts of different provisions that, that all have purposes of their own. And really, the inquiry into legislative purpose, reason why good originalists don't do that and why the, the uh, courts in general don't like to do that is because purpose depends on how closely you look at the bill. If you look at this provision, what was the purpose of this provision? If you take 10 steps back and look at it this way, and then if you know it's different, if you take 10 more steps back, then the purpose is even more different. So that's why that approach really is not what the courts uh, ought to use. Well, if I can just, can I just respond to that, that point for briefly, two sentences. The problem with that, Tim, is that you are challenging one part of the ACA, which is the individual mandate, and there's no question that the purpose uh, of there that. There is no individual mandate. Well, the, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's true. There, it was always true. The, 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 um, but also always the tax, it's, it's, it's called the individual mandate. It's really a tax incentive, and that's what Chief Justice Roberts ruled, and it was basically always true. But the point is that there's no question about that the purpose of the revenue-related provisions in that section, um, the, the purpose is to encourage people to have health insurance and not to raise revenue. And, and this is a point that, that you made when, in your original presentation, and, and I wrote down this phrase because I was so surprised by it, quote, putting aside the legal characterization, end quote. That's just the problem, is that what the Supreme Court said in NFIB is 
that this does nothing more than levy a tax on the state of not buying health insurance. It is therefore akin to a sin tax, like a tax on tobacco or alcohol, which, while it may have a regulatory purpose, is nevertheless a revenue-raising measure, which ought to be subject to the origination clause. Paul Kaminar, I'm uh, the attorney that represented Congressman Trent Franks, along with my co-counsel, Joe Schmitz, and the amici um, that uh, we just heard the argument, and Tim did an excellent job there. And going back to the corporate taxes, uh, Tim did clarify that in the beginning, as we put in our brief, the House bill did not raise any taxes whatsoever. It was a tax credit to veterans who buy homes. And the corporate provision says, quote, time for payment of corporate estimate taxes, estimated taxes. And the Supreme Court clearly held in Burrell versus United States, quote, withholding and estimated tax remittances are not taxes in their own right, but simply methods for collecting the income tax. So I don't know how you can say, uh, uh, Professor Lazarus, how, how that was a uh, revenue-raising bill to begin with. So the, the suspenders were well put on uh, at, at the argument. I'm glad to hear uh, uh, Getting to the belt, uh, in terms of for-raising revenue, uh, we cited in our brief, and by the way, our brief relies heavily on a law review article uh, that was just published last week, uh, and I recommend everybody that the, our uh, brief is online at uh, Congressman Tranks' website. But anyway, uh, the framers' original bill had it, and the draft version was, quote, bills for raising money for the purpose of revenue or appropriating the same. That for the purpose of revenue was struck out, and they were looking at this as all just all money bills. They don't want to uh, narrow it so that for bills for raising revenue as opposed to bills that raise a revenue is just a, a matter of semantics, and the uh, subsequent uh, court cases show that uh, the, uh, we were concerned about all money bills and that only the House closest to the people were in charge. And finally... The, the way I saw the argument in terms of the last clause, and I'd like to get your views on this, as on other bills, where the Senate can amend as on other bills. Isn't the real question here, what do the framers and the ratifiers think what that meant at that time, not what they have now in terms of Senate practice? Oh, we can have amendments in the nature of a substitute and so forth. And if you look at the history, as we did extensively, as on other bills, meant only that it was germane to the bill that came from the House. You could not have this gun in the mint. Thank you. Oh, there's a lot there. Who wants to respond? Uh, well, first I'll say that I, I, all the briefs and other information, I just forgot I wanted to do this. I tweeted them out at, uh, with Cato events in there, so any of you who, who would like to read the briefs of the amici as oh, well, well as he was arguing. Team. He was not tweeting. Oh, yeah, I was like, that. Your Honor, can you hold on a second? Um, uh, anyway, uh, um, as far as as on other bills, I think the reason why, if, imagine what the clause would have been like if it had not included that phrase. It would have said... This, it, the, it would have said that the House must originate the bills and the Senate can amend those bills. Well, now a, a lawyer who's addressing the Senate's power in some other context, say ratifying treaties or whatever, now he's looking at what, what power does the Senate have? Well, here's this clause that says the Senate can amend tax bills. That kind of implies they can't amend other kinds of bills. And I think the phrase, as on other bills, was intended to defuse that. We know that the founders are very sensitive to that concern because that's what the Ninth Amendment does, right? The Ninth Amendment says, don't read the De Bill of Rights to imply that those are the only rights in the con that are protected by the Constitution. And I think they were concerned that clever lawyers might read a more limited origination clause as a, a limit on the Senate's power in other contexts. 
we know that the only inadmissible reading of the origination clause is a reading that transforms the second clause into a nullification of the first. It simply cannot be the case that origination and amend are the same thing. If that's the, the meaning, then the clause is meaningless. And what is the difference between origination and amend? The only difference is germaneness, right? And the, the only, if without germaneness, all amendments are origination, then every amendment would be the, the origination of a provision. So to amend has to include this concept of germaneness. Now, the government's position in this case is there is no germaneness requirement. The Senate can do absolutely anything it wants. As soon as it gets a piece of paper from the House, it can erase it completely and write on whatever it wants to and send it back to the House and call it macaroni. And that can't be what the, what the Founding Fathers intended because they debated it and said, this clause is going to have real meat. They said, we don't like this. So Madison said, I don't like this clause because it'll limit the power of the Senate. And the rest of the delegates of Philadelphia said, yeah, that sounds cool to us, you know. And then at the ratification convention, this one, one opponent says, well, this, this isn't going to really limit the power of the Senate. And Madison said, yes, it will. And they said, oh, okay, so we'll vote for it, right? There is, there is not a single, as you know, because your brief emphasizes this, there is not a single shred of evidence from the founding period that suggests that the origination clause was interpreted to allow the Senate to substitute the entire contents of a revenue-raising bill. It's true that the idea of an amendment in the form of a substitution was around at that time, of course, and the Constitution limits it. Right. That's that's why that clause is there, because the, the Congress is allowed to write its own rules, except in this context that the House is not allowed to. I mean, the Senate is not allowed to originate revenue bills. Maybe Sai wants to respond. There's been. So just a, a brief comment on this, I think. From an originalist point of view, you're absolutely right. Obviously, not everybody is an originalist, but I think even from a living constitution point of view, this argument should appeal because most modern living constitution theories still do argue that uh, courts should not simply gut and replace parts of the constitutional text unless there's some powerful pragmatic reason to do so. And in this case, there isn't any such powerful pragmatic reason precisely because, I said earlier, the origination clause uh, doesn't make much real-world difference. So if the court were to enforce it, the most extreme thing that could happen is simply a high percentage of bills would have to originate in the House, and the politicians could very easily adjust to it because any bill which had enough support to pass in the first place it should be possible to arrange for it to be originated in the House. I would note, actually, in some ways, actually easier to originate bills in the House than in the Senate because whoever controls the House has tighter control over the procedures of the House and over moving bills through than is the case in the Senate. Uh, what happened in this case is a very unusual situation where, uh, you know, something could be pushed through the Senate initially, uh, and, but, but couldn't be pushed through just a, a few weeks later because a senator died and was replaced by uh, a senator from the uh, other side. Uh, so that's a very unusual circumstance that's unlikely to recur. So even from the standpoint of mainstream living constitution theories, this is a situation where I think this argument has merit in part precisely because it wouldn't have much long-term effect. Uh, Ilya, just to make sure that I have this clearly, your, your practical point, are you saying that because of the direct election of senators and the Senate also being sensitive to public opinion, it doesn't matter really? No, that's only one of the reasons why it doesn't matter. The big reason why it doesn't matter is that any 
influence that the House might have. Uh, it can use simply by blocking things to come from the Senate, which, as Cy pointed out, it does all the time. Moreover, as a practical matter, if a bill has enough support to pass both houses, then it's very easy for the politicians in favor of it to arrange for it to be first put forward in the House and only and it's secondarily in the Senate. I think James Madison pointed this out in the 18th century and remains valid today. Uh, it's even more valid with the changes in the composition of the Senate, but I'd say it was valid even before that. I guess I just uh, um, just say one thing if I can, and that is uh, this whole discussion uh, um, among uh, the three of you um, who support the plaintiff's case seems to me just to underscore a point that I made in my presentation, uh, which is you're asking uh, the Supreme Court to uh, invalidate the most significant piece of social legislation that's been enacted in the last 50 or 60 years um, on the basis of uh, an interpretation of the text of a clause in the Constitution, which is, uh, appears to be, uh, is, is a possible interpretation, but it's certainly not the only interpretation, and it's not the interpretation that seems to be most consistent with that text, and it's not the interpretation that has uh, 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 reigned for the last um, hundred and, and something uh, years. Um, and, um, and, and, and the reason for adopting this interpretation that Paul has put forward in here and in his uh, very excellent brief um, is an ingenious uh, in, uh, interpretation of the words to show that they really mean something, they meant something to the architects of those words. I, if I'm getting this wrong, Paul, tell me. But it seems to me that the argument is they meant something different to the, the founders than they would appear to mean uh, to us. Um, and that, that's just not much of a basis for uh, five unelected, un, unfireable Supreme Court justices to uh, reverse a huge uh, act uh, of, of uh, the people's elected officials, I think. Maybe you want to respond to that. Well, I'll just say that, that asking nine elected judges to strike down the most significant piece of social legislation in the past 50 years on the basis of constitutional theories that judges tend not to take seriously is my middle name. <laughs> it's a long middle name. <laughs> For purposes of social security tax uh, Let's go back there. And we started late, so I'm going to go a little longer, uh, take a few minutes to uh, cut into, into lunch, especially since we gave Cy the uh, Snickers bar. <laughs> yes, that's fair enough. Hi, I'm uh, Dave Shostokas. I'm um, an attorney. I host a little radio show in Southwest Florida called Constitutionally Speaking. And we've done three shows about the origination clause and uh, in, this, in this matter. And <clears throat> while I've been preparing for the shows and looking at that, I've read many of the briefs that are involved in these cases. There seems to be an assumption that the Senate's amendment power is nearly plenary, nearly, that this small limitation. However, you talk about the practice and what's gone on over the last 200 some odd years, everybody does agree that if it's not a revenue bill, the Senate can't amend it to add revenue. There's, there's no disagreement on that issue. My question turns out to be is, when it says, as on any other bill, if the Senate cannot add revenue to any other bill, 
why can the Senate even add revenue to a House bill that raised revenue in the first place? Why can't why can they do that? I think that the reason to to boil it down more simply, it's is is it dispositive of my case, whether the original House bill was a bill for raising revenue or not, because and and my answer is no, I don't think so. I think even this is getting into the realm of if the Constitution were read the way it ought to be, which is very far away from here. That's crazy. Uh, Yeah. Um, but the, I think even if a House bill were a bill for, for raising revenue, there are certain, kind, certain Senate amendments that I think would exceed the Senate's power to amend. Because the operative word in the, in the origination clause, as far as that's concerned, is not as on other bills. It's amend. It's what does the word amend mean? And I think a bill that tax, that imp- a House bill that were to put a, you know, a dollar tax on milk, if it were completely replaced with a Senate bill to pay, put a hundred dollar tax on railroads, I think that is arguably a violation of the origination clause because that's not an amendment. That, however, is, is farther away even from the, kinds of, the kind of argument that I'm trying to get to here. And, I, you know, we have to work with the precedent that we have. And the, the precedent that we have says that, the, that if a bill is a revenue-raising bill, the Senate at least has a, a lot broader discretion. Now, there's even some circuit court cases that have said that bills cutting taxes qualify as revenue-raising bills for purposes of the origination clause. Again, I think those are wrongly decided, um, but it's not necessary for us to get there to win this case. And so I, I, I didn't go down that route in the briefs or, or anything. But, but Tim, I believe the premise of the question was, if we accept, or for purposes of the question, the original bill was not a revenue-raising bill, why, you said that that's that oh, yeah, I think positive. That's you. right. I think the Senate can't amend a non-revenue bill at all, to, to add taxes at all, and I think that's what happened here. What happened here was a, a tax credit a targeted tax credit with identifiable beneficiaries, So, which if that's anything, it's more like a subsidy, but it's not a tax. It doesn't levy a tax. And I think that the cases are best read as saying if it levies a tax, it's presumptively a bill for raising revenue unless some of the exceptions that have been written in by the case law apply, which, which isn't the case here. So I think, it, I think it's a strong argument for our side that the House bill was not a bill for raising revenue. But in the ideal world, I would not say that we would lose even if it were. My name is Andy Hawks. I'm a local attorney. Um, Even if the lower court was correct that the individual mandate is not primarily for raising revenue, why aren't the other taxes in the ACA uh, measures for raising revenue? Okay, I can answer that. Well, I, I, you know, one would have to look at all the other taxes to decide which ones were and which ones weren't, I suppose. But uh, I think the the important uh, distinction here our point here is the one I noted that Chief Justice Roberts emphasized, and that, and that simply is that in this case, unlike normal taxes, uh, it really is an option. Uh, it is an incentive. You either buy insurance or you pay a tax. If you pay the tax, you don't have to buy insurance, um, and um, and that satisfies your legal obligation. And and you know this is. In, this is this is different from other taxes. They raise revenue, and you have to and you have to pay the taxes no matter what. Yeah. On that, I think actually, for reasons I indicated earlier, this actually strengthens the plaintiff's case because if you agree with Robert's interpretation of this, which frankly I do not, but if you agree with him, uh, then it turns out that with respect to millions of people 
who we expect to pay the penalty or to fine rather than to buy the health insurance, the only possible purpose with respect to those millions of people is in fact raising revenue. So even on a sort of purpose-based analysis, assuming that you accept the idea that the purpose matters, with respect to millions of people, the only purpose is raising revenue. That's the only effect of this mandate on them. Uh, and therefore, uh, in that sense, it may be even more of uh, a revenue-raising bill than uh, something where uh, you know it wasn't really optional. Uh, All right, let's take a last question, if there is one. This gentleman here. Thank you. My name is Hermes from the Occupy Wall Street. Uh, my question is about uh, the uh, really the difference between tax and penalty. And why I have this question is because of there is uh, a, di a dimension that is not very uh, understood that explain all of what is happening. The Obamacare is actually a weapon against the American people and it's come right from a Muslim book. You can find at the verse 9, chapter 29, a verse that says, and fight those to which the book was given who believe not in the divinity, nor in the last day until they pay jizya in Arabic, and it, mean, it means tax. Uh, Occupy movement, because the country is occupied by, by army people don't see, who are directing the federal government and doing things that people cannot understand. We have a hard time to explain those things. Maybe just, maybe it would require a conference to explain and make this thing understandable. But for now, my question is about what difference did you put between tax and penalty? Um, in the, the NFIB court goes into some depth about the difference between taxes and penalties in order to determine um, uh, counterintuitively, let's say, that the individual mandate uh, imposes a tax and not a penalty. And what it says is it contrasts the case with Drexel Furniture, which is a case of where Congress wanted to outlaw child labor, so it imposed a hefty tax on child labor, on products made with child labor. And the Supreme Court found that unconstitutional because it said what Congress is trying to do here is to regulate something that's beyond its, its commerce power. This is back when the Commerce Clause actually had limits. And it says, well, Congress can't regulate this, and what it's trying to do here is regulate something it's not allowed to regulate through the clever disguise of imposing a tax on it. And that's not allowed. And so what Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts does is he points at that case and says, this is the reverse of that. This is something that purports to be a regulation of commerce, but that would be unconstitutional. So really all it does is impose a tax. And what that means is all it does is levy the tax not a penalty, so the penalty exception to the origination clause can't apply, which means it must have originated in the House. Incidentally, the origination clause is mentioned only once in the entire NFIB decision, and that's by the dissenters in a single sentence, and they use it as an argument for why they don't buy Chief Justice Roberts's tax argument. They say this can't be a tax because that would be the Supreme Court creating a tax, and only the House is allowed to originate bills for raising revenue. Uh, well, once we conclude, I will invite everyone to uh, come to lunch upstairs uh, on the second floor in the George Yeager uh, Conference Center. Uh, and I'll conclude by saying that uh, even though President Obama recently declared that the debate over his health care law is over, uh, to quote John Belushi, nothing's over till we decide it is. <laughs> it should be no surprise that a law forced on the American people against their will is still unpopular. 
or that its implementation continues to hit snags. You can only defy basic economic laws and human nature for so long, or not at all, uh, and this isn't the last we'll hear of the lawsuits against it. Stay tuned. Thank you.